And we're t- doing a new series on the Trinity. We've wrapped up our study on uh, the book of Ruth, and I hope you enjoyed that study as much as I did. But now we are going to launch into a new study for this summer. Uh, Lord willing, for the next six weeks, we'll be diving into the glorious and humbling truth that our God is triune. Father, Son, and Spirit. One undivided God existing eternally in three distinct persons. Now, as that silly little video made clear, the Trinity is not an easy doctrine to wrap your mind around. Uh, It is something that has been taught by the church since the time of Jesus and the apostles, but the doctrine has often been misunderstood, it's been poorly communicated or neglected altogether. People have tried to use a number of human analogies to explain the Trinity. Again, there's St. Patrick's three-leaf clover, there's water with its three states of liquid, solid, and vapor. People have tried to use an egg to explain the Trinity with its shell, its white, and its yolk. And according to the video, and I didn't know this until I watched the video, people have even used the cartoon program Voltron to try to explain the Trinity. But as the uh, Irish twins pointed out, all too often, even the best of those analogies fall way short. In attempting to simplify and easily explain the nature of God, these analogies, these human analogies, often end up giving us an unbiblical view of God. Uh, as the video explained, several of those analogies, analogies teach a view of God, such as modalism or Arianism, which has been condemned by the church down through history as heretical. So it's tempting. When you come to a doctrine like this, a doctrine that's difficult to understand, it's tempting to just choose to ignore it, to just ignore it. As Christians or as a local church, we can be tempted to say, you know what, we're just going to focus on things that are easy to study or things that we deem are practical for our lives. But such a temptation, a temptation to ignore such a glorious doctrine as the doctrine of the Trinity, is so very dangerous. You see, nothing could be more practical, more beneficial to our lives than having a right understanding of our God. Amen? Nothing's more beneficial, nothing's more practical for our lives than having a right understanding of our God. And, and no matter what our culture might argue, we, we are not autonomous beings living lives under our own authority and for our own purposes, right? We're not autonomous, we're not just out there on our own living life under our own authority and for our own purpose. We are created beings. We were created for a purpose. We are created for the purpose of bringing glory to God and being in relationship, a relationship of worship and obedience to the God who made us. So in order for us to understand who we are and to understand why we are and to thrive in our existence as God's creation, we need to understand the God who made us. Amen? We need to understand the God who made us. And the God who made us (coughs) is triune. The true and living and only God is one, yet three. Father, Son, and Spirit. And that isn't some creation of an ancient theological council, and it isn't some inconsequential for our, tr- for our lives as Christians. It's actually our foundation as Christians. It's fundamental truth to Christianity. We are, mark this down, we are people of the triune God. We are people of the triune God. When Jesus gave the Great Commission, you remember that? You remember what he said when he gave that Great Commission in Matthew 28? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and do what? Okay, (laughs) that was a little frightening for your pastor there. Go and make disciples of all nations. And then remember what he says? Baptizing them in the name of what? Who? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
We are those who have been baptized. We are those who have been identified with the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We are people of the triune God. But that isn't simply some obscure truth to mark us out as Christians. This is, as we'll be talking about this morning, the atmosphere of our Christianity. As Christians, we are those who are experientially familiar with the triune God. Think with me about this. We are experientially familiar with the triune God. The Father has chosen us, right? The Son has died for us. And the Spirit has applied that great work to our hearts, giving us new life. The Trinity is the air that we breathe, and it's the soil in which we are planted as Christians. As Christians, we are people who are in a relationship with this triune God, both as creator and as Savior. But there's a very real danger of being ignorant of who we are. There's a very real danger of being ignorant of who we are. And that ignorance can rob us of the joy, the delight, the worshipful wonder of seeing our God for who he truly is. It can hinder us from thriving in this new life that we've been given as Christians. In my study for this series, I've come across some, I've been reading lots of books. And I've come across some really powerful and rich Trinitarian teaching. And sometimes it's been from places that I didn't expect to find it. Um, One wonderful Trinitarian theologian that I came across is Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley, reading her reflections from her journals on the Trinity, wonderful, wonderful Trinitarian truth. And maybe I'll share some of that with you next week. But another surprising Trinitarian theologian I came across was gang member turned evangelist Nicky Cruz. Some of you may be familiar with his story from the book The Cross and the Switchplate. Anybody of you read that book? Okay. And maybe you've read his autobiography, Run, Baby, Run. How many of you have read that book? For those of you who aren't familiar with Nicky Cruz's stories, story, in, in, 1950s, in the 1950s, Cruz was a member of a violent New York street gang called the Mau Mau's. But then God invaded his life uh, through a run-in with a, a young preacher named David Wilkerson. Cruz was rescued from that life of violence and crime through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and again, all that's detailed in those books I mentioned in Again, in his autobiography, Run, Baby, Run. But what surprised me as I was doing this study is that's not the only book that Cruz wrote. In 1976, Cruz Cruz wrote a book on the Trinity called The Magnificent Three. And in that book, look at this quote here. Cruz wrote, Something has emerged in my walk with God that has become the most important element of my discipleship. When somebody says that, you should take note. The most important element of my discipleship. It has become the thing which sustains me, that feeds me, that keeps me steady when I'm shaking. What is it? I have come to see God, to know him, to relate to him as three in one, God as Trinity, God as Father, Savior, and Holy Spirit. God has given me over the years a vision of himself as the three in one, and the ability to relate to God in this way is the single most important fact of my Christian growth. Again, look at what he says. Again, that should jump out at us, right? That's the single most important fact of my Christian growth. He says this ability to relate to God as Father, Son, and Spirit. But here's an important point I want to mention. Seeing God this way for Cruz, delighting in God as Trinity, wasn't something that happened right away in his life. Uh, In his book, he explains his initial frustration with this doctrine. It's a frustration which I think many Christians can relate. Listen to what he says. I won't put this quote up there. Just listen to what he says. 
He writes, why have three persons, I thought, when it confuses me so much? It seemed to me such a totally unnecessary complication. Why couldn't God just be God? Then I would understand him. This Trinity business I accepted by faith, but I could not relate to it all, at all. I could not relate to it at all. But then there came about a breakthrough in Cruz's understanding. Cruz began to realize that the things that were being described in this doctrine was a relationship already present in his life as a Christian. He knew the saving work of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And the doctrine of the Trinity just helped him to see that all of that, all of those relationships, came from the one God who exists eternally in three persons. And that opened the door for Cruz to see the beauty of the Trinity. He writes, I understand that God is, listen to this, I understand that God is so much more to me as three in one than he could ever be in any other way. I know how much easier it is for me to relate to him in that day-to-day way because he is three. And then he explains this, I'm not simply talking about theology. What I'm describing is something different from merely believing in the doctrine of the Trinity. I've always believed in the Trinity, but I never experienced God personally as three in one. He says, it was at first merely a doctrine which I believed, but now it has become a truth of everyday life. God has developed in me a sense of separate relationships which I can have with the Father, the Savior, and the Holy Spirit. He has shown me the strength that comes from these separate relationships, the power for living. He has taught me to feed off the Trinity for my daily sustenance rather than just having some vague feeling that the Trinity is somehow true. What Cruz came to understand is that the Trinity is the atmosphere of our Christianity. It's the air that we breathe. It's the soil in which we're planted. Another Trinitarian theologian put it this way. He said, The first step on the way to the heart of Trinitarian mystery is to recognize that as Christians we find ourselves already deeply involved in the triune life and need only to rightly reflect on that present reality. Most evangelical Christians don't need to be talked into the Trinitarian theory. They need to be shown that they are immersed in the Trinitarian reality. They need to be shown that they are immersed in the Trinitarian reality. And then he says this. We need to see and feel that we are surrounded by the Trinity. Compassed about. On every side. By the presence and the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's the atmosphere in which we are as Christians. You see... The doctrine of the Trinity, it's not some abstract truth that's disconnected from us. That This is just a topic that people talk about in their ivory towers of theology. It's not a truth that we are disconnected from. It is an essential reality of our existence as Christians. It is the air that we breathe. It's the soil in which we are planted. And the more that we understand that atmosphere, the more our lives as Christians, the blessed relationship that we have with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit will flourish. Will flourish. And that's why we're going to be doing this study over the next several weeks. Um, Six weeks to be precise. Six weeks, Lord willing. And, And my plan for the first two messages in this series is to set the landscape. I want to talk about this atmosphere. I want to give you some big picture ideas about the Trinity. And then in messages three, four, and five in this series, I want to narrow our focus I want to spend one message on each of the persons of the Trinity. 
So we'll have one Sunday where we focus on the person and the ministry of God the Father, one Sunday where we focus on the person and ministry of God the Spirit, and one Sunday where we focus on the person and ministry of God the Son. Now, I know that as we work through these five weeks, the messages will be a little bit long because that's what we do here at Redemption. But even though they will be a little bit long, there's a lot of things I won't be able to address. And there's probably a lot of questions that I won't be able to answer in those messages. So here's my plan for our sixth week. In your bulletin, you see there, there at the bottom of the notes page, there's a tear-off slip where I want you to write down questions that you have about the Trinity. And you can give that to me, or I think my email address is in there. You can email it to me. I'll give you my phone number. You can text the questions. Please don't come up right before Sunday morning or right after and give me a 15-minute question because it, it will slip right off my brain. But write it down. Either hand it to me on that sheet of paper or uh, text it to me or email it to me. And, um, excuse me here. And my plan then is for that sixth message is to address as many of those questions as I can. So I want to do the sixth sermon is going to be a Q&A sermon. So your questions will set the content for that sixth message. So that's my plan for the study. Six messages to help us learn about and to delight in this atmosphere of our Christianity, this truth that we are in a relationship with the triune God. Now, this morning, as we, as we go big picture, as I set the landscape, as we talk about this atmosphere, I want to address three questions this morning. And the first, we've already hit on. Why is it important to study the doctrine of the Trinity? Why is it important? Well, it's important because that's the God with which we're in a relationship. Amen? Okay, so we don't want to be idolaters. We don't have some kind of false idea of God. This is the God we're, who we're in a relationship with, so we need to understand our God. So that's... That's why. That's the atmosphere of our Christianity. That's the soil in which our Christianity will thrive. So that's why we're doing this study. But I also want to address two other questions this morning. The next question I want to address is, how do we talk about the Trinity? How do we talk about this triune God? As, as that video with St. Patrick and the Irish twins pointed out, we can get into real trouble with our language, especially when attempting to describe this God who is three in one. Again, many of the analogies that we use to describe the Trinity, they're, they're broken. They end up saying things and teaching things that the Bible doesn't say or teach. They end up leading us to make unbiblical statements grounded in unbiblical thoughts about the God of the Bible. They lead us to make untrue statements grounded in untrue thoughts about the true and living God. So the analogies, and really, when you push all of them, they all fail at places. But where the analogies fail, we find help in the historical creeds of the Christian church. Now, I'm not sure what comes to mind when you hear that word creed. So let me explain what a creed is. At certain times in church history, especially early in church history, the church gathered together, gathered councils, assembled councils, to make united doctrinal statements. And usually these gatherings, these councils, were assembled to deal with confusion about doctrine. As the church was growing, as the church was expanding, and people were writing things, and people were teaching things, some of the things that were being spread around and adopted by Christians were actually in error. There was false doctrine being spread through the church. Kind of surprising, huh? We've never heard of anything like that. Yeah, it's still going on today. But these councils would gather together in order to study the scriptures and then make clear what the Bible does or doesn't say. And these councils, they were made up of godly men who worked hard to make clear the teaching of the Bible for the good of the church. And they would put this, this teaching that they had 
work together to, to understand, they'd put that in statements. They, they'd put that out in creeds. Now, probably the most famous creed, the creed which is still recited in many churches, is the Apostles' Creed. How many of you have heard that? I think Luke or Dave, we've actually sang it here at church on some Sundays. But there are two other creeds that I want to uh, talk about this morning, the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. And, and I want to talk about these two creeds because both were written specifically to help the church in speaking rightly about the Trinity. Now, I'm not going to go into the story behind each of the creeds, even though it's a really fascinating story behind the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed. But I just want to point out some of the language that they use because I think it's really helpful. So first, the Nicene Creed. This creed was put together in 325 AD, and it focused on addressing the deity of Christ in relationship with the Father. Now, it does speak in that creed about all three persons of the Trinity. It mentions the Holy Spirit as well. Um, But there's a heavy emphasis in that creed on God the Son. Second section of the creed, I'll just read it to you. It says this, We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. Now there's a lot of helpful statements in that, but one I want to focus in on particular, and that's this statement here. Being of one substance with the Father. What the writers of those, that creed were, were working to make clear, and there were some 300 pastors that got together to, to write the Nicene Creed, but they were working to make clear that God the Father and God the Son, and by implication God the Spirit, are one in essence. One in essence. And what they, they mean by that is that there is only one what when it comes to God. Only one what when it comes to God. Let me explain what I mean. One of the reasons that we have difficulty when we're talking about the Trinity uh, is that we feel like we're, making, we're talking about an equation that doesn't really make any sense. Maybe you've seen people say something like this. With the Trinity, one plus one plus one equals one. Anybody ever seen that before? Well, that statement and that equation confuses things. It doesn't help things. You see, the Bible reveals that God is one and God is three, but note this down. God isn't one in the same way that he is three. God isn't one in the same way that he is three. When it comes to the God of the Bible, there's one what and three who's. I kind of feel like I'm using Dr. Seuss terminology when I say that. But three who's. And, and what I mean by that is that there is one essence, one nature, three persons. That's what the Bible teaches. The Bible is clearly monotheistic. One God. There is one God. There is one God who is eternal, infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, and sovereign. There aren't three gods. There aren't three sovereigns. There aren't a series of sovereigns with one slightly outranking the other. There is one God, one divine essence, one what? But this one God exists eternally in three distinct persons. And let's be honest, this is where our brain starts to hurt. Amen? You see, the, the equation that we're used to working with is one nature, one person, right? That's the equation we're, we're used to working with. Think about yourself. You are a human being. Can I get an amen on that one? <laughs> and as a human being, you have certain attributes. You are limited to the space that you're in. You're not everywhere present, amen? So you're limited to the space that you're in. 
And you're also limited in your understanding. You're growing in your understanding. You don't know all things. We're, we're working hard through these sermons to grow in our understanding. So you're limited spatially. You're limited in your understanding. You're growing in your understanding. You are an emotional, physical, spiritual being. You have a gender. Side note, that gender doesn't change. Bruce Jenner is still Bruce Jenner. But all of those characteristics, those attributes, that's part of your nature. That's your essence. That's the way you would answer the question, what are you? You are a human being. But what makes you distinct from every other human being on the planet is how you answer the who question. Who are you? I'm Ryan. Pleased to meet you. But I'm Ryan. That's who I am. And you, you might be glad about this, you are not Ryan. You're you. And as me, I have certain roles and certain functions that I fill. I am the husband of Amy, father of Riley and Anna, pastor of Redemption Bible Church, and on we could go. But that's the equation that we're used to dealing with. Is it making sense? That's the equation we're used to dealing with. One what? One essence, one nature, one who? One person. That's what we're used to dealing with. I am a human male essence named Ryan. Person. That's the equation we're used to dealing with, and that's what we're comfortable with. But when it comes to what the Bible reveals about God, we get a whole new and uncomfortable and overwhelming equation. We have one what and, are you with me here? Three who's. We find one divine essence existing eternally in three distinct persons. And let's be honest, that equation is not something we're comfortable with. It's something that hurts our brains. It's staggering. But guess what? It's the truth of the transcendent God. Amen? And so it should bring us to our knees. It should humble us. It should be overwhelming. It's a staggering equation. But what I want you to understand and what the men who wrote the Nicene Creed were, were laboring to communicate is that God isn't one in the same way that he is three. God isn't one in the same way that he is three. The Father and the Son are different persons who are of one substance, one essence, one divine nature, three distinct persons. And that brings me to the second creed I want to talk about this morning, the Athanasian Creed. Now, the Athanasian Creed was named after Athanasius. Kind of seems to fit the Athanasian Creed. Athanasius, he was a pastor in the fourth century, and he fought valiantly against the heresy of Arianism. Arianism taught uh, that Jesus was a created being and denied the Trinity, and so Athanasius fought against that heresy. Now, although this is called the Athanasius Creed and it's named after him, it didn't originate with Athanasius in the fourth century. Actually, it didn't come about until the sixth century. The church crafted it in the sixth century. But this this creed, the Athanasian Creed, really focuses on fleshing out how God is both one and three. The creed states this. The Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. Now, when it says the Catholic faith, that isn't talking about the Catholic Church, big C, Catholic. Um, It's simply talking about the universal church. That's what the word Catholic means. Means. So this creed is saying, this is orthodox Christianity. This is what Christians believe. And it says, this is what we believe. We worship one God in Trinity, and Trinity in unity, neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. I want to focus on that phrase. By neither confounding the persons, the creed is making the point that there are three distinct persons in the Godhead. Later on, the creed says it this way, for there is one person of the Father another of the Son, 
and another of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God isn't one person wearing three different masks. You know, today he, he's the father. And then tomorrow he puts on the son mask. And then the next day he puts on the spirit mask. That's not the God of the Bible. When it comes to the triune God, there are three distinct persons. Now, now some have taught the error that it's one God putting on three different masks. Some have taught that God revealed himself as the Father in the Old Testament, as the Son in the Incarnation, and as the Spirit in the Church Age. But that isn't what the Bible teaches. That is a heresy called modalism. One divine person who manifests himself in, three different, in different ways at different times. And that's why that water analogy doesn't work. God isn't one person wearing three different masks. God is one God, one what, existing eternally in three distinct persons. Three, I'm going to use that Dr. Seuss terminology again. Three who's. One what, three who's. Let's get back to the statement. Neither confounding the persons nor dividing the substance. In other words, Christians don't worship three gods. The substance, the essence of God isn't divided into three parts. There's one divine nature possessed, enjoyed eternally by three persons. And the way that the creed puts this is beautiful. Look at this. For there is one person of the Father, and another of the Son, and another of the Holy Spirit. But the Godhead of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is all one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, and such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated, the Father incomprehensible, the Son incomprehensible, the Holy Spirit incomprehensible, the Father eternal, the Son eternal, and the Holy Spirit eternal. Yet, and yet, there are not three eternals, but what? One eternal. As also there are not three incomprehensibles or three uncreated but one uncreated, one incomprehensible. And the creed continues on in that fashion. It makes clear that the Catholic faith, the truth that all Christians are called to confess, is one God, eternal, infinite, immortal, in three distinct persons. And the ancient church came up with a a picture to communicate this. It's called the Trinity Shield, and it's what I've been using as my background for these slides this morning. Um, That's it in Latin. Here it is in English, easier to read. And as you can see, the illustration shows us that all three persons are equally God, but there are three distinct persons. The Father is a unique person with his own role and his own responsibilities. We're going to talk about that in the third sermon. The Son is a unique person with his own roles and responsibilities. And where this really becomes practical in our lives is the Father didn't die for your sins on the cross. So as you pray... I mean, I'm sure it's nice and all, and you mean well. But don't thank the Father for dying on the, sin, on the cross for your sins, because he didn't. Who died on the cross for your sins? Yes, Jesus, the Son, died on the cross for your sins. And again, we're going to explore that more in our fourth sermon. And in the fifth sermon, we'll look at the fact that, of the, the Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a unique person. He's not a force, not an it, but a person with his own roles and responsibilities. I think sometimes in our more Baptistic tradition, it seems like the, the Spirit is the forgotten member of the Trinity. Um, more, like, more often, it seems like our Trinity is the Father, the Son, and the Bible instead of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So we're going to talk more about the ministry of the Spirit in that fifth message. But my point in bringing up these two creeds, and, I, and I'm, again, thank you for hanging with me on this, 
But my point in bringing up these two creeds and sharing this image is to make sure that we understand how the church for the last 2,000 years has spoken about the Trinity, has spoken about the Trinity. I want to make sure that as we enter into the study, we understand what we're talking about. Not, not that we can easily get our minds around it, but that, that we use biblical language. We are talking about God, who is, who is not one in the same way that he is three. We're talking about one what and three who's. One God and three distinct persons. But even though I've gone through all this trouble this morning to talk about using right language, um, I want to make it clear that right language is not enough. Right language is not enough. You see, if that's our primary focus when we study the Trinity and making sure that we can rightly articulate these truths about the Trinity, then we're going to end up missing the boat badly when it comes to this study. Right language is helpful. You don't need to be praying to the Father, thanking Him for dying on the cross for your sins. Right language is helpful, but it can't be our goal. You see, as the Bible reveals truths about the Trinity, it doesn't give us a discourse on right language to use. Instead, the primary focus in the Bible is on the revelation of a relationship. Revelation of a relationship with the triune God. And that needs to be our goal as well. Not just speaking rightly about the Trinity, but delighting in this relationship that we have with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that leads me to my third and final question for this morning. Where do we meet this triune God? Where do we meet the Trinity? Now, you might answer that question by saying, in the Bible. And guess what? That's a correct answer. Good job if that's your answer. But as I ask this third question, I'm pursuing a more narrow answer. And here's what I mean. As you go through the Old Testament, you see hints and shadows of the Trinity. As you look at the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament, you you find a solid foundation laid for a Trinitarian understanding of God. But where we really meet the Trinity in full force is in the advent of Christ and the gospel work. There in the gospel story, we are brought face to face with the truth that the God of the Bible is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, for those of you who are visiting with us today, we, we normally, we're in the scriptures. We're working through passages of the scriptures. So this is a little bit different this morning. And, and I'm sure you're sitting there and you're going, you know, Ryan, my Bible's getting cold. I haven't even opened it up. So let's warm up our Bibles, all right? So let's, let's dive into the scriptures. So take your Bibles and turn over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. And again, taking all this time, again, we haven't warmed up our Bibles this morning because I'm just trying to set the course. Uh, look at the landscape here. But let's get into the word now and let's start to unpack some things. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And look at what we find here uh, in the beginning of the Gospel story, in the beginning of John's account of the Gospel story. Look at the first verse there in John, chapter 1. There we read what? In the beginning was what? The Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Here John begins his account of the gospel story by bringing his readers face-to-face with Trinitarian reality. He speaks about Jesus here, calling Jesus the Word. If you get to verse 14, you see that's who he's talking about when he says the Word. He's talking about Jesus. And he first points to the eternality of the Word. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning, the Word, Jesus, already was. The Word wasn't a created being. He was already present when creation began. Then John makes clear the personhood of the word. The word was what? 
with God, with God. There was a relationship, a, a fellowship. The, the word wasn't just a mask that God was wearing. The word was, is a distinct person. And then lastly, in a, in a line that blows our minds, and if rightly understood, blows cults like the Jehovah Witnesses and the Mormons out of the water. In that last phrase, John shows us the mystery of the Trinity. This one who had always existed, this one who enjoys fellowship with God, is also himself God. But notice, John doesn't say the word was a God, or the word was the God. He says, and the word was God. If John had said the word was a God, you could argue that the Bible teaches multiple gods. But it doesn't. And John isn't teaching that here. And if John had said the word was the God, that statement could have been taken as a denial of the Father and the Spirit as being God. As in, the word and only the word is God. But by the ministry of the Spirit, John doesn't fall into either of those traps. As he introduces us to Jesus, he states powerfully and beautifully the mystery of the Trinity. One God, three persons. And John continues to expose us to these truths as he continues to explain Jesus. Go down, down, go down now to verse 14. Look at verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Then look at verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, literally the only begotten God who is at the bosom of the Father, a line that speaks of powerful intimacy, has made him known. You see, as John describes the, the advent of Christ, the coming of the Son of God into our world to save us, he reveals Trinitarian truth. He brings us face to face with the mystery of this triune God. He calls us to meet the triune God. But John isn't the only gospel writer who does us. They, they all do this. Turn over to a book that I'm sure you've been missing lately. You know, we haven't been in in a while. Turn over to the book of Mark. Mark chapter 1. And for those of you who are visiting with us, we just finished up a study of Ruth. And before that, we were in a study of the gospel of Mark for, I don't know, couple months? <laughs> yeah, three years. <laughs> but Mark chapter 1. And look at the text starting in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Here Mark begins his gospel story by giving his readers a picture of the Trinity. Think about what you're seeing there. You have God the Son being baptized. You have God the Spirit descending upon the Son like a dove in order to empower him for ministry. And then you have the voice from heaven. Who is the voice from heaven? God the Father, declaring his delight and his pleasure in the Son. You have three distinct persons there, not one God wearing three masks. And all are united in the gospel work centered in Jesus Christ. Again, we meet the Trinity in the gospel story. And these gospel writers, and we could look at many other passages, but these gospel writers show us these Trinitarian realities, not because they decided to get creative or not because they wanted to put something in there that would confuse their readers, 
but because they were simply passing along the teaching that they had received from Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ was a Trinitarian teacher. And you probably could better say Jesus was the original Trinitarian teacher. Jesus made powerful claims about his own deity. Don't, you have, don't have to turn to these texts, just jot them down. But John eight fifty eight, Jesus said to a group of people that were standing there, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. And what Jesus, he's making this point about his eternality, but he's not just making his point about his eternality. In making that point about his eternality, he takes up a name. Takes up God's own name. I am that I am. That's what the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh means. So Jesus looked at them and said, before Abraham was, I am. Over in John chapter 10, verse 30. When pressed on the issue of his identity, who are you, they ask him. Jesus staggered those crowds by claiming that I and the Father are one, he said. I and the Father are one. And on both occasions, both there in John 8 and in John 10, those listening to him, remember what they did? They picked up stones in order to kill him for blasphemy because they understood he was making the claim that he was God. He is God. He was making a claim about his deity. But Jesus didn't just teach that he was God. Uh, in the upper room discourse, the night before he was arrested, he taught extensively about the ministry and person of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just want to highlight one of those passages this morning. When we get to the, mes- the message on the Holy Spirit, we'll go into this in more detail. But take your Bibles and turn over to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. As you're turning there, I just want to make a point. I know it's a little warm in here this morning. There's a fan. Look at all that prime real estate that nobody's enjoying. I told Kim, you, you were on the ball today. These poor folks over here, you're so far away from the fan. Maybe next week we'll get one for that side. I was thinking about it this morning. I think we have this battle of desires because we have some back row Baptists here. And hey, we come in, we want to sit in the back row for some reason. But here's the fan, so you're kind of <laughs> pulled between the two. All right, enough of that. John chapter 16. Look at the text starting in verse 7. Verse 7. Jesus says to his disciples, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. They were panicked about him going away. He says, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, which is, is a name that he is using here for the Holy Spirit throughout the upper room discourse, the, the parakletos, the, the one who comes alongside, the comforter. And when Jesus first introduces this term, he talks about the Holy Spirit as another helper. Another one like me, Jesus is saying. But he says, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send. And notice the, the pronoun that he uses here. Him, not it. Jesus taught that the Holy Spirit isn't a force. He's a person. I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will, he will do the work of God. Who convicts people about their sin? You can share the gospel with people, but at the end of the day, who's changing somebody's heart? Only God. And notice what he says here. Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. 
When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, although he does possess authority. But whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you all the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore I said that he, the spirit of truth, will take what is mine and declare it to you. When you look at what's being said, that's such a beautiful picture of the ministry of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it comes directly from the lips of who? The lips of Jesus. But as Jesus taught all of those things, and we could look at more passages, he wasn't ever teaching that there were three gods. Jesus was thoroughly monotheistic. Remember back from our study in Mark, when Jesus was there in the temple and the scribe came to him and he said to him, which commandment is the most important of all? You remember that? Remember the answer that Jesus gave? He went to the heart of the Jewish law, the heart of Jewish monotheism. He quoted the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One. He made it clear there isn't multiple gods. There is only one God. But as Jesus revealed, that one God exists in three persons. And we meet these three majestic, glorious persons in the gospel story. We meet them at the cross, as God the Son, by the ministry of God the Spirit, offers himself up as the sacrifice to satisfy the wrath of God the Father. We see them at the empty tomb, as God the Son triumphs over the grave to the glory of the Father in the power of the Spirit. And we see them building the church. As God the Son pours out God the Spirit, to sanctify us for obedience towards God our Father. We meet this triune God in the gospel story. And in a much more personal way, you also meet this triune God in your story. As God's saving work invades your life, as the gospel story becomes your story, the reality is you are experiencing the triune God as Father, Son, and Spirit embrace you in order to save your soul. I almost titled this series, Meeting the God You Already Know. Because if you're a Christian, you've already experienced the reality of the Trinity. You've tasted the love of the Father. You've reached out in faith to embrace the Son. And the only reason you've experienced any of that is because God the Holy Spirit was at work in your heart. We are people of the triune God. This is the atmosphere of our Christianity. It's the air that we breathe. It's the soil in which we are planted. Brothers and sisters, this is your atmosphere as a Christian. But all too often, we are ignorant of it. We're ignorant of it. And we miss out on the blessings of enjoying and delighting in as, and as Nikki Cruz said, of feeding upon this amazing relationship we have with our triune God. I'd like to close this morning with uh, a few last quotes from Nikki Cruz's book. And as I read these, ask yourself this question. I'm not going to put them up here. I just want you to listen. Ask yourself the question, is this the way I think about my God? Is this the way I think about my God? He writes about his conversion, and he says this. I remember when I saw the real Jesus for the first time, and, and I love the way he writes. He makes it very personal. Listen to what he says. Suddenly I saw you, he's speaking to Jesus. Suddenly I saw you as you really were. 
I saw that you were human, just like me. I saw that you had courage, you had guts. Sounds like a guy who grew up on the streets of New York, right? You had something I couldn't describe. Something I'd never seen before. Something incredibly strong and tender all at the same time. I saw that you had the power to squash me like a bug. And instead you poured out your blood to save me. To love me. To heal my aching heart. He continues, God is a magnificent father. God is a magnificent Savior, Jesus Christ. But if it were not for the magnificent Holy Spirit, I would still be a wretched, hateful sinner. It is not enough to have a Father God who loves and provides for me. It is not even enough to have a Savior who died for me. For any of these blessings to make a difference in our lives, there must also be present in this world the third person of God, the Holy Spirit. Jesus saved me. The Father forgave me. But the Holy Spirit convicted me, brought me to my knees, and showed me God. He showed me Jesus Christ, and I was gripped by his strong, sweet love. And I love this. And then he shoved me towards God, and I gladly fell into the arms of my loving Father. That's the beauty of the Trinity. One God, three persons. A glorious relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit that we get to experience every day as Christians. So brothers and sisters, let's grow in our understanding of it. Let's put our roots down deep into this soil and breathe in the wonderful oxygen of the Trinity, the atmosphere of our Christianity. We're going to close our service by gathering together around the Lord's table. Um, And we're gathering together around the Lord's table to celebrate the saving work of our triune God. We come to this table rejoicing in the salvation planned for us by God the Father, purchased for us by God the Son, and applied to us by God the Holy Spirit. The work of the entire Godhead is on display as we gather together around this table. So let me encourage you, brothers and sisters, feed on it. Feed on the reality of our triune God. Would you pray with me? Holy God, we come before you asking that you would continue to grip our hearts with this understanding of who we are. I pray for all my brothers and sisters that although we've talked about some heady things, some heavy things this morning, I pray that they would leave this place just overwhelmed with the reality that they are in a relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit. And that there would be in them a delight in that and a wonder in that and a desire to grow in understanding what that really means, how that fleshes itself out in their lives. And I pray that in all of us, as we go through this study over the next several weeks, and we put our roots down deep into this soil and we breathe in the oxygen of this truth, that you would grow in us a heart of worship and wonder. That you would grow in us a strength, a delight in this truth. We praise you, Father, for loving us, for choosing us, for setting your affections upon us, for adopting us into your family and making us your own precious children. Who loves us like you love us? 
Lord Jesus, we praise you that though you existed in infinite glory, worshipped by heaven, that you set aside that position of glory and stepped down and took upon yourself the position of a humble, lowly servant. You became, you took upon yourself our humanity. You became one of us. That kind of condescension we can't even begin to get our minds around. But you didn't come here to live in a palace. You were born in a manger. And you lived that perfect, sinless, obedient life every step of the way resting in the power of the Spirit, obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And you died that death for us. Lord Jesus, we praise you. We praise you that you lived for us, you died for us, and on the third day you rose again for us. And Holy Spirit, as we have been reminded today, none of this stuff would make any sense to us. The gospel wouldn't make any sense to us. We'd still be pushing against God if it wasn't for your ministry in our lives, giving us eyes to see, ears to hear, taking out this heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. And you not only changed us, but every day you're filling us, you're teaching us the truths of your word, you're empowering us to live a life that looks like the life of Christ that looks like a life of an obedient child before the Father. And we don't do that by our strength. We do that because you are indwelling us, empowering us to do that. So, holy triune God, we praise you for your work in saving us. And now as we gather together around the table, feed our hearts in this time. Feed our hearts on these gospel truths. These things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.